Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. How many times have you seen children scolded by their parents who then turn around when their parents aren't watching and they do the same thing again? We might just think, oh, well, they're kids. They'll learn when they get older. But what if they don't learn? What if they choose to ignore what's right? What if they show no remorse for their wrongdoing and don't feel the need to change? That's called an unrepentant heart. People who know that they've sinned, but they refuse to ask God for forgiveness or turn away from their sin. Unrepentance is simply the sin of willfully remaining sinful. What happens to these unrepentant people? They keep doing what they want to do, no matter what the consequences. I'm Debbie Blank. Today, we're going to see the outcome of those who choose to disobey our God. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. When people continue to sin willfully and without repentance, they descend to where their hearts are so calloused, they can't tell right from wrong anymore. Eventually, evil becomes good and good becomes evil. Romans 1 describes this process as being given over to a reprobate or depraved mind. These people have chosen each step of their decline, and now their judgment is set. Their wicked hearts have been darkened, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Although they knew the ordinances of God, they didn't care. It's hard to believe the depth of unrepentance we are about to witness in facing the judgments of Revelation 9, but it's important to examine how the unrepentant, given every chance, continue to reject God. We were told in Revelation 8.13, the very last verse of that chapter, that the world was going to experience three woes. Woe, woe, woe is what it said. We talked about the first woe last week in Revelation 9. When the fifth angel blew the trumpet and these strange looking locust creatures came up out of the abyss and tormented man for five months. In Revelation 9, 12, we're told that that was the first woe. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. What we learned is these woes are initiating satanic activity on the world. While Satan is the God of this world right now, according to 1 John 5, 19, he is thrown down to earth in Revelation 12, 12, knowing he only has a short time. And we're seeing that activity, that satanic and demonic activity, which started with the first woe in the fifth trumpet. Now we're moving to the second woe. Woe is oi in the Hebrew language, which means great sorrow, grief, mourning, horrible things that have and are going to continue to happen. And we're going to see that second woe as the sixth trumpet is sounded. In verse 13, it says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So the scene changes, and we're at the altar of God in heaven. We are, and yet we're still talking about satanic activity here on earth. We actually talked about the altar of God when we talked about the fifth seal being opened and what was going on in heaven and souls under the altar. There's two different kinds of altars that are mentioned in scripture. This particular one is talking about the four horns of the golden altar. 
Well, we could look at Exodus 27, specifically verse 2, and find out that this is the altar of burnt offering. So we have the angel who's sounding the trumpet directly in heaven by the golden altar. And it's going to be a sound of judgment because it's an altar of burnt offerings. It goes on to say in verse 14, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. Uh, Who are these four angels? Are they angels or are they demons? In scripture, only demons are bound. You notice that it says bound. The word bound is deo in the Greek, and it means to tie with a chain or a cord. Nowhere in scripture do we see angels tied or bound with anything. So these demons have been bound by God at the great river Euphrates for a long time, according to verse 15. It says the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month of the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. So they are now released. God has unbound them and he's allowed them to go forth because with this blowing of the trumpet, a third of mankind is going to be killed. Now imagine that. Just let's just look at some numbers and we're guessing here, but let's look at the idea. Say when this happens, there are 8 billion people on the earth. We're close. We're at 7.7 billion right now. Let's say 8 billion people. Let's just pray that 2 billion of them are raptured. So by the time the tribulation starts, the world would have 6 billion people. Maybe. When the fourth seal is opened, in Revelation 6, we're told 25% or a fourth of the earth is killed. So a fourth of 6 billion would leave the world with 4.5 billion people. Now we come to this judgment where a third of mankind are killed. That's another 1.5 million people. By the time you get through the sixth trumpet, There will be 3 billion out of 8 billion, using the numbers that I used, left on this world. That is going to be a devastation to try and deal with all the death, all the mourning, the burials, the illnesses and sicknesses that occur because of death. All that's going to happen in this world is going to be devastating when another third of the world is killed. There's a specific river that's mentioned. So we're talking about earth geography, and it mentions the river Euphrates, which has had other significance in Scripture. And then these angels come from there. That's where they were bound, which is interesting. And we, you've talked about how they were evil angels, because otherwise God wouldn't have bound them. And they're released, and I'm on verse 15, they're prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year that they were released. So there's a specific time. It's interesting to me that a time is set out like that, that specifically. Is there significance to that? Well, it's fascinating to me how God is such a timely God. We see that throughout the book of Revelation when he says after this or one day or 1260 days, the different things. God's very specific on time, not just in the book of Revelation, but he's specific on a lot of details throughout scripture. He's specific on numbers and counting and listing genealogies because God is a God of order. And to give us these specific time periods tells us that God is in charge of the future. And he knows what's going to happen. He plans it. He's got his timetable mapped out exactly. He's given it to us. We just don't happen to know when this hour and day and month and year are. But we know that God's in control. That's reassuring to me. Because as we read a lot of this, you think, oh, the whole world's out of control. Uh, Nature's gone wild. 
No, it's God in control, making plans for the future as he has set out thousands of years ago. He gives us this information, this timing, and he gives us a specific river. What's the importance of the Euphrates River? If you go back in Genesis, you'll find out that the Garden of Eden was incorporated around four different rivers, and only two of those in existence now. The other two have been destroyed probably during the flood. Now, there is a Gihon stream in Jerusalem today. And now we have the Euphrates River that runs from the Persian Gulf up to the eastern part of Turkey, basically along the Fertile Crescent area at the top that winds around through Jerusalem and Israel down towards Egypt. This Euphrates River has been mentioned, as I say, from the very beginning. It's the boundaries that we know of between Asia and the Middle East. It's the site of the Tower of Babel. Have you ever thought about that? In Genesis 11, the beginning of goodness started around the Euphrates with the Garden of Eden. But when sin entered into the world, that also became a place where there was idolatry, the site of the Tower of Babel, but also idolatry, where it first began under Nimrod, Nimrod's kingdom, was around that area in Genesis 10. The first murder took place in that area in Genesis 4. The first war took place in Genesis 14, when Abraham fought against Chedorlaomer and other kings of that region. It's a very important region in the world, but specifically as it deals with Israel. Here, it's a boundary. It's a river that forces people to go around it, to fight in the Middle East or in Africa or even in towards Turkey and into Europe. And yet the river is going to stop flowing. And there's a reason for that. So when we look at those things in 15 and then we look at verse 16, it says, and the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So we've gone from angels to all of a sudden we have armies that are, I guess, set out to be the ones to do the killing. And this army is more than there were people on the earth at that time, at the time of this writing. So is this an exact number? Are we being given something symbolic? Are these real armies? What's going on here? I take God literally. He has prepared those four demons to hold back the river Euphrates so this 200 million man army can come over that on the land because otherwise they probably wouldn't have room or time if they had to go all the way around the river. So these people were able to cross a dry riverbed. Interesting because I wonder if the riverbed's going to be dry because of all the plagues that have taken place and the trumpet judgments. For whatever reason, God had these demons hold back the river so that people could cross it. And again, we have a number. In verse 15, we had a timing number. Now we have a specific number of horsemen. Why would John come up with the name 200 million? That was probably a number he didn't even understand back then because they didn't have 200 million people on the earth. Now, as I mentioned, we have 8.7 billion people on the earth. But let's consider that in 1800, there were only 1 billion. In 1900, 2 billion people inhabited the earth. When the number 200 million men, especially as indicated as an army, is given by John, people could not imagine an army this size ever until our generation. As a matter of fact, it wasn't possible until our generation. Because if you think about it, in 1999, even China didn't have an army large enough. But now... China has 522 million men 
that are of fighting age. And that's not even including women. India has a potential 500 million man army today. There's four and a half billion people who live east of the Euphrates, so it could be any group of people. Even the Muslims, there's 200 million Muslims of fighting age who live east of the Euphrates. There's 1.8 billion Muslims on the earth, so if they came from other parts, they could fight. So you figure even that 40% of the world has been destroyed because of what we talked about earlier with those numbers, you still have enough people from those different countries who could come from the east in an attempt to try and fight and kill the people that they're going to kill. So whether these are real people, which they certainly could be now, was probably not something the Bible writers could foresee and yet has come about in our time. So it's possible they are literal armies or whatever they are, they are at least demonically inspired. We know that. So we're looking into the next verse, number 17, and it describes what the horses and the riders are like. And it says, this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire, smoke, and brimstone. Is this literal, or what does it mean? (laughs) This is what John saw. He used the word like again, so it's a simile. He is expressing what he is seeing with his first century vision. What are these? We don't know. Are they more demons? They could be, because this is demonic activity. Or perhaps it's satanic influence on actual people and armies to fight in Satan's name. Could they be AIs? That was never a potential until our generation, where something like this, where these riders, where these horses could be described as they are. Whatever they are, however they come about, they are there to murder one-third of the people on the earth. Because you'll notice, too, it says there's horses and there's riders. So both of them are described here. It's people and it's some kind of animal or machinery or something. And they're going to be involved in the death. It says that in verse 18, one third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. Let's go back and look at verse 17, because it says the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire, smoke and brimstone. So what that sounds like is the people may be riding these animals or whatever they're riding, but it's out of these creatures, the animals, that come the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone that actually kill people. It says in verse 18, a third of the mankind was killed by these three plagues, and it specifically mentions them, fire, smoke, brimstone. Brimstone, of course, is an example we've seen in scripture. Fire and brimstone comes down out of heaven from God. That's basically just sulfur, which is something that would come out of burning up something else. So this is fire that's going to kill people and smoke. This isn't earthquakes. It's not something, a plague or anything like that. It's specifically fire. They're being burned to death by these creatures. When it says plagues, The plague means a wound or a physical injury that's going to take place through the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone. Could it be the devastation of nuclear weaponry that's being used, localized by some kind of machinery? It sure could. We don't know. We just know it's going to happen. 
Well, I'm glad you explained about plagues because our ears are so sensitive to that word right now that it can also mean wound or whatever that would come out from this fire and brimstone and smoke. So looking at verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and they have heads and with them they do harm. We see the word like again. So how do you describe this? I really have no idea. It could be anything. And it could be something yet to be created because we are nearly three and a half years into the tribulation by this time. There's a lot of technology that's being developed by our country, by Russia and lots of other countries that we haven't even seen, aren't familiar with. So it could be any kind of military technology that's already been developed. It could be satanic. It could be something we've never seen before. The key is after all of this, you would think the people who are left would repent when they have seen such horrors occur, but they don't. In Revelation 9, 20 and 21, it says, and the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship the demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So these people didn't repent. They were doing two things continuously, worshiping demons and worshiping money, finances, power, that kind of thing to go with it. And then it tells us in verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So two different kinds of things they didn't repent from, satanic worship and greed, and then their actions, murder, sorceries, or pharmacia. So drugs, that's usually what we see in drugs. So they're murdering could be killing people on their own. It could be murdering with their tongue, their drugs, immorality. We know sex is rampant in this world today, and they're going to continue doing whatever they want sexually. And then nor of their thefts. They're going to be stealing money. They're going to be taking whatever they can from these people who have died so that they can get richer and wealthier. So we're kind of back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the program, this inability to repent and the idea that these people were worshiping Satan. And you think, how could people worship Satan? And how could they, they'd almost have to have lost their minds. And in in a way, that's what's being described here. They're just um, so overtaken by evil. Almost every kind of evil you can think of is being mentioned here. But at the top of that list was that they were worshiping demons. They were not worshiping the true God. And again, it's going to get worse as we move into the seventh trumpet. We're going to see that blatant worship again. The tragedy here is that so many people are experiencing, oh, I've already said that. Consider Proverbs 29.1 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. And that hardens his neck means he's stiff-necked. And when someone is stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're obstinate. They have no response to God or his guidance or his direction or his correction, and they don't want it. That proverb tells us that they're stiff-necked and they're just going to keep doing what they want to do. They want to blame God for things. They don't want to turn to God. So what are the consequences? According to Psalm 7, 12 through 16, it says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. That means God. God has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes arrows for fiery shafts. And then it moves on to talking about men there when it says they travail with wickedness and conceive mischief and bring forth falsehood. Again, talking about men, it says they dig their own pit, they hollow it out, they fall into a hole which they have made, 
and their mischief will return upon their head, and their violence will descend upon their own head. Those are the consequences if people don't turn to God. They will continue to walk in their ways. And Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amount to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. These people have continued in their actions against God. And God says the wrath of God is going to come upon them because they continue to walk in their own ways. There's consequences to sin. And those consequences are devastating. I think of King Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. God promised him a kingdom of 10 of the tribes of Israel and said, I will make you a great nation if you follow me. Unfortunately, Jeroboam chose to go his own way and he never turned back. He went so far as to build altars in Dan and Bethel, the most northern and southern parts of his kingdom, so people would worship there instead of Jerusalem. He chose people who weren't Levites to be priests. He established holy dates that weren't in the Bible that he wanted so people would worship on his days instead of God's. He was consummately evil. So you know what God said to him? Actually, God said this to his wife to go home and tell him this in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 7. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, that's the consequence now. Here's your sin. Here's the consequence. First Kings 14.10. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. To me, that's an example of a man who never really had a relationship with God that I can tell, certainly not a true one. But when he was using his own devices and following his own ways, he turned away from God completely and did what was right in his own eyes that was so evil, there was a consequence. That's what we're seeing here to these people who will not repent. Another couple of instances of people who were unrepentant that people might be familiar with in Scripture, one of them would be Pharaoh, who hardened his heart and hardened his heart, and Moses kept coming back to him and coming back to him, and eventually God said, that's it. He knew that Pharaoh's heart was so hardened that he wasn't going to come around, so he said, that's it, and let his heart be hardened at that point. We also have Judas, who was remorseful. We know that when he denied Christ and he sold him for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed him in that manner, he was remorseful to the degree that he killed himself, but he was not repentant. If we look at Peter and the times that Peter denied Christ, he denied him three times. However, he came back to Jesus. Jesus drew him back to himself, and he forgave him and put him in charge of his sheep. So there's a couple of examples, and then one where somebody was remorseful and repentant. Repentant. 
versus just remorseful. And we have David, too, as an example. He now is a believer. So that's different than these unbelievers we're talking about here in Revelation. But he was not repentant at first with his sin with Bathsheba and his killing her husband or of birthing a child with Bathsheba until he was confronted. But when the prophet Nathan confronted him, he repented. That's the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever. Because a Christian, when God convicts their spirit, hopefully we will listen to God. We will be repentant. We will turn from our wicked ways and we will turn back to God. Those whose hearts are so completely hardened will not do that. And I also think it's interesting to go back to Psalm 7, 12 through 16, which you read, and go to verse 15, and it says, He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. So sometimes the punishment is something that they've created that comes back on themselves. And so this, uh, the unrepentant Haman in the book of Esther, he is the evil one who built the scaffolding, planning on hanging the righteous Mordecai, and instead he ends up being hung on the scaffolding that he built for someone else. Also, Pharaoh, uh, at the um, last plague, the 10th plague of the the deaths of the firstborn, he pronounced that plague on Moses and on Israel, and instead it turned around and it came upon himself and his country. There's lots of examples in that in Scripture. I think of Numbers chapter 16 with Korah. Korah was a wise man under Moses. He had 250 guys who were good friends of his who kind of believed that they were more important or at least just as important as Moses. So they rebelled against Moses. When they did, Moses was horrified, and he said to everybody, move away from these people. And God ended up opening an earthquake. All of Pharaoh's household fell into the earthquake. So they went down into the pit, as we're saying here. And then the other 250 were destroyed. Now, most of us have experienced distress or tribulation and difficult times in this world, and we're going to. But these woes we're talking about... There is nothing like that that we've ever seen or experienced. So you'd think that the pain of the locust in the first woe would cause people to look for an answer, maybe to draw to God? Nope, just the opposite. People's hearts are so hardened that they're so deceived that they turn from God instead. Let's look at Romans 2, 5 through 11 to see an example of that. It says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good for seeking glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. God continues to give an opportunity for repentance throughout the book of Revelation. But these people have already hardened their hearts away from it. So we need to be careful not to be deceived. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 warns us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now is the time to repent. 
to turn to God before it's too late. Because these people, by the time they got this far in the tribulation period, they were worshiping Satan. They were not going to turn back to God. We need to make sure that we change our hearts right now and turn our hearts to God so that we can have a relationship with him for all eternity and not experience the horrors and the change of heart and the satanic oppression that's going to be taking place in the near future. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.